Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I am a writer and an entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've wondered what makes life meaningful and what makes work worth doing. In my day job, I help schools and universities, entrepreneurs and leaders learn how to market and grow their reach. You can learn more about my company, Your People, at yourppl.com. I also am a writing coach, and I teach my signature Find Your Voice Writers Workshop, through writingworkshops.com and at makemeaning.org. I help people, organizations, and movements find their voice and gain the confidence to use it. Because everything we do means something. Why waste your moments? You are needed. You can make the world better. And by caring about the people you encounter and the tasks you take on, you get closer every day to finding your unique meaning and living life with purpose. This podcast focuses on all the many ways people make meaning in the mundane. You'll hear stories of courageous people daring to imagine a life they love. If you like what you hear, give us a review on any of the podcast platforms you find this show. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. The colonizing of America separated indigenous people from nourishing native foods or first foods, which are plant and animal species that Native Americans traditionally relied upon for subsistence, medicine, and ceremonial uses. In its place landed foods high in white flour, refined sugar, and unhealthy fats that led to epidemics of diet-related disease among Native communities. According to the CDC, more Native Americans live with diabetes than any other community in the United States. Food sovereignty is the ability to control production and distribution of the food that a person or a community consumes, and eating a decolonized diet is key to changing the health profile of Native Americans. This is starting to happen in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, just as it is happening across America as part of a vast indigenous gardens network. More than a decade ago, folks at the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community, Michigan Technological University, and the Western UP Planning and Development Region envisioned a space that celebrated and preserved the knowledge and cultural identity of tribal people living in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They created the Debwayendan Indigenous Gardens, also known as DIGS, which led to an even greater goal, achieving food sovereignty. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with Karina Schmidt and Valerie Gagnon, two key players in the UP's Debwayendan Indigenous Gardens. Karina is an ecologist with the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community Natural Resources Department. Valerie is an assistant professor in the College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science at Michigan Tech, where she is also the director for University Indigenous Community Partnerships at the Great Lakes Research Center. So join me in chatting with Karina and Valerie on today's episode of the Make Meaning Podcast. All right, Karina and Val, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'd like to start by learning a bit about each of you. So I wonder if you can tell me about your background and how you came to be part of this Indigenous Gardens program. Sure. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. My background is in environmental policy, and I began a research partnership with the Keweenaw Bay Indian community in 2010. At that time, I was a brand new graduate student, Mm -hmm. and I spent the summer as a volunteer intern with the Natural Resources Department. 
And at that time, the greenhouse biodome had just been built. And that biodome is still there today. That is where initially plants for restoration Mm -hmm. were grown and cared for. We're talking 2010, so 12 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. And and fast forwarding into the Debway Indon Indigenous Gardens, that greenhouse now cultivates also the plants and the foods and the medicines that are that are at the garden. And so through these years, I have continued my my research relationship with the Kiwanabe Indian community. And for um, for a long time, uh, food sovereignty has been a priority in the community. Karina, can you jump in and tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be a part of the digs? Yeah, sure. So my background, I have a degree in environmental ecology from the University of Arizona hmm. that I um, earned many, many years ago. And through a very interesting and adventurous path, I ended up here with the Kiwana Bay Indian community in 2017. Hmm. And I was hired at that time to be the ecologist for the tribe. So my work involves with native plant restoration, the community gardening, a lot of protective work, thinking a lot about and uh, addressing the concern of invasive species sure. and doing plans for protecting pollinators. More and more of my work has focused on just loving the gardens and loving the people who garden and loving the plants that grow in the gardens. That's beautiful. I love that. So now let's go back, um, Val, to 2010 and tell me a little bit about how the digs came to be, what inspired this project and how it's grown and expanded over time. Sure. In 2010, within the work of the biodome and the greenhouse, for several years, the, the plants were intended for restoration on the other side of Keweenaw Bay. And then initiatives more focused on the community garden came several years later. In 2013 is the year we put up the fencing and began the community gardening. Yeah, I understand you have an orchard and beehives and a wildlife habitat, and you've planted some native medicine plants, um, so many different things. It was just wonderful to do the research and learn about all that you're growing. And of course, the greenhouse. So tell me, how do you decide what to plant, and how are these crops serving your community? There are four medicines for all people, or the the plants for all people, and that would be the tobacco, the sage, and the sweetgrass. So they are all at the garden, just because they set the tone for honoring the land and honoring the teachings of those plants. And then beyond that, what goes into the community garden plot, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. really need to focus on the kind of foods that people will eat one has to just think carefully about if we want to engage the community in gardening, mm-hmm. then we need to be growing those plants that have a great receptivity within the community. So a lot of the choices that are made are in consideration if you're going to involve the community in gardening, mm-hmm. let's grow those things that will be well received. Another strong and I would say equal consideration is we're quite far north. Uh-huh. And so we need to be growing those species that, that are cold adapted And we've been doing this now for several years, and so a lot of our seeds have come into the category of being land race. Yeah, that's great. That's really exciting. You know, so tell me, educate me, please, what are some of the original native foods from this region? 
Oh, there's a wonderful book. I just want to put a word out for the book Please. called Seakeeper by Diane Wilson. She is the director of the Dream of Wild Health in Minnesota. And it's just a fabulous story about sea keepers and the lineage of primarily women that have been through so many travail in life and have found ways to save and protect seeds. So I highly recommend that read. Native plants around here, squashes, mm-hmm. there are potatoes that have come into the region. Mm-hmm. There's corn. We have a bear island flint corn comes out of Minnesota. And there's also the Oneida tribe, which has rain corn, which is wonderful. And then um, various leafy greens. So there would be different amaranth and, and that sort of thing that, that find their way this far north. I think I could add a little bit to that when we think about, you know, what are traditional foods in this region or any region for that matter. And traditional foods is really important to think of them as a process and not some kind a point in time. I would like to also mention the work of Dr. Martin Reinhardt at Northern Michigan University, who has done extensive work on the decolonized diet Hmm. and thinking about traditional foods, you know, prior to colonization. Also really important to know that even though there were pre-colonial foods, other foods were adopted and, and still are being adopted by different communities. And so really when we're thinking about traditional foods, we we must think about that as a process and, and not a point in time, I think is really important. That's really helpful. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And, you know, while we're clarifying, I'd love to talk a little bit about food sovereignty, which is a term that I'm not sure many people truly understand. So I wonder if you might lay it out for us, you know, what is food sovereignty? How do we achieve it? And why is it so important? I think when describing food sovereignty, it's important to know that those descriptions change from region to region and from people group to people group. Mm -hmm. And here within the Keweenaw Bay Indian community, the way that we describe food sovereignty, it's really about having the ability to feed ourselves and feed ourselves well. Mm. Uh, And so there's there are a handful of definitions out there, you know, that people go to, but there's also, I think it's Elizabeth Hoover who did an edited volume on food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And she did exactly that, went to community to community asking what is food sovereignty to really illustrate the range of the ways that people practice food sovereignty in place. The way I understand food sovereignty is that we have this land where all these wonderful foods grow, basically eating those foods in the place where you are. Mm. And so the foods that would be celebrating the food sovereignty of the Anishinaabe people would Mm -hmm. include those dark fruits, it would include wild rice, it would include fish. You know, Mm -hmm. these are the foods that are of this region. And then in addition to knowing those foods that grow here in in their wild and native way, it's then choosing to eat those foods and and loving those foods. Mm -hmm. So it isn't so much plucking up a plant and having it in a designed garden, but you know those wild places and where they are and and here to explore them. I love that. I, you know, I recently actually went to Hawaii and, um, we ate papaya, which was very local and ripe and in season. And it tasted so different from any papaya that I've had here because it's been transported so far and picked before it was ripe. And it was like a completely different fruit. 
And it made me think about how in so many communities, people are not eating foods that are local and native, which can be so destructive for our overall health, not to mention the health of the planet, um, because we expend incredible energy and resources to transport produce and other food items around the globe. So I was wondering what your thoughts are about how we might all benefit from eating a more mindfully local and native diet. And you know, if so, how might people learn about how to eat more healthfully and close to home? I think really what you just described was our motivation for the Diggs Garden and the many workshops that we had with community members to learn more about the foods that are related to this land. You know, we're not going to transition overnight into just eating local foods or just gathering and planting local foods and knowing how to care for local foods. But we wanted to make a strong effort to start somewhere where we have to start somewhere. Sure. We were just all about our connection to the land. One of our strong influences is Robin Wall Kimmerer and the way she views the land and the people and and this whole idea of kinship and having Mm. kinship with the plants. So when one thinks about plants and and if we think about them as our relatives, Mm. it enables us to to love them at a deeper level, to, to seek ways to protect them. And so one has to go about these things very enthusiastically, you know, one has to like really hype up the blueberries and hype up the deliciousness of wild rice. I've been to conferences where the people will say, we were once the healthiest people on the planet and we want to be that way again. And so to ease back and move forward with just renewed courage and strength, it just takes a lot of love. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting. A lot of this is re-education because this effort is not just about growing healthy foods. I know one of your key goals is to preserve tribal culture and care for the environment. So I'd like to learn a little bit about the native communities of the Upper Peninsula and how the Diggs Garden is promoting and preserving tribal culture in the UP. Yeah, I can share a little bit about that. Here in this region, this is traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homeland of the Anishinaabe people. The Anishinaabe are the Ojibwa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi. So I think we spoke a little bit to preserving and restoring culture and the practices. Mm -hmm. And Karina talked about the four sacred medicines to the Anishinaabe people, and also restoring that relationship and connections to the land and, you know, remembering and growing our knowledge of the land and those relationships and also the specific knowledge that different plants and medicines and parts of the land have to teach us. Because mm-hmm. we're not just learning about blueberries, but what do the blueberries have to teach us? And so I tend to not talk directly about like this is culture or that is culture, mm-hmm. uh, but it's more about that collection of practices and relationships. Mm. And so being there at the garden and growing and taking care of and those gatherings among community members of many ages that is a cultural practice. And so I think many times we want to pinpoint these terms or definitions about what is and what isn't, but everything Ojibwe people doing today is who they are. It's their culture. It's, yeah. it's identity. 
And part of that identity of not just Ojibwe people and the Anishinaabe people more widely, but as part of being human is to have relationships mm-hmm. with lands and waters and plants. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is also another really important part of the knowledge that's shared because people who come to the garden and participate in the learning are also teachers. You know, we all grew up in different places mm-hmm. and we all have different knowledge about different plants and practices. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of that was exchanging that knowledge. That exchange, I think, is really important. I think when we're talking about like drawing on and preserving culture, I think what we're really thinking about is those values and that identity and remembering and bringing that forward to the present day and having relationship with the land and with each other is mm-hmm. a critical part of bringing and practicing culture today. Yeah. I, I understand, you know, it's a great transition to my next question, which is that the work you're doing in the UP is part of a larger trend across America known as the Indigenous Gardens Network. Um, and I was reading up on it and it learned that its goal is to restore areas where first foods can be cultivated, harvested, uh, made accessible to Indigenous peoples. So can you tell me a little bit more about how this larger effort and the connection among all of those doing this important work really informs what you're doing in the UP? Yeah, we do have a close connections with that. And the whole idea of learning from one another was just so important. And so gardeners from, from the other groups and associations will come and visit our gardens, and I've gone to visit the other gardens. And when we do have harvests, we make sure that the various partners that we have are all recipients of some of the harvest. So this whole idea of exchange and sharing is just part of a larger picture. And when we have our volunteering days, we have a program called Garden for Heart, and mm-hmm. when people come to participate that, many of them are associated with these, these other wonderful groups in the UP that all think mm-hmm. carefully and wonderfully mm-hmm. about food sovereignty and access to healthy foods. We're always so grateful. And reciprocity is the garden enables us to celebrate and honor one another. Yeah. You know, I feel like we can't talk about any of this without paying homage to and grappling with the the horrible history of genocide, forced treaties, removal from ancestral land that Indigenous people have endured on this continent. And so I, I want to ask what those of us outside of Native communities can do to ally with tribal efforts at reclamation and reconciliation. Whoa, that is a huge question, <laughs> yes. a tremendous question. And I, and I think that people outside of tribal communities, as you describe it, are attuned to this now, right? The ears are listening, rather eyes are open and people are curious. And so actually you asked a question that's really on the mind of more and more people in the present day. And I think one really important place that people can start is to learn where you are learn about the indigenous people that have their histories and identities tied to the land that you are a part of, Mm -hmm. that is now your home. Mm -hmm. I think there's just no better place to start than there. Also, I think some people who think that they're outside of tribal communities aren't, and they Mm. just don't realize it. 
Mm-hmm. And so within and across the Great Lakes region, the treaties of 1836, 1837, 1842, and 1854 cover almost the entire Great Lakes region in the United States as ceded territory, which has been interpreted to be sold lands, but the tribes understood that term to mean shared lands. Okay. And so having shared rights and responsibilities across the entire region, it's doing some homework, following those curiosities. There's so much information out there for people who are looking for that. And it's really an exciting time that people are so curious. Even, you know, the the Food Sovereignty Initiative at Keweenaw Bay, and when, you know, like you mentioned, the Indigenous Food Sovereignty Network, and those alliances that are taking place, People have been doing this work for a very long time without that term. People have wanted to maintain who they are. Mm-hmm. And like Karina was talking about with the, the seed saving, people have been saving seeds for centuries and rediscovering some of those seeds and relocating some of those seeds back where they belong. Like you said, there is just a very ugly collection of stories and history, but some of that isn't just the past. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't understand fully about what our systems are doing and how they are continuing to disrupt and degrade people's land and practices and their identities. So it's just important to start with the land that your feet are on. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are, what are those stories? Mm. I wonder as we finish our conversation, if you have any last thoughts for our listeners about how they can get involved or what their next steps could be. Of course, I'll share in the show notes, all the wonderful people and books that you've mentioned and links to everything. But if somebody's listening right now and they're really excited about all these ideas and possibilities, what should their next steps be? What what advice would you offer to them? Well, I would welcome anyone on the first and third Saturday of every month from May through October okay. <laughs> to one of our Garden for Heart events. It's just a fantastic time to come together and people of all ages are welcome. And it's mm-hmm. a, a lovely, lovely event. And even off to the side, just other useful things to do to get better engaged with our indigenous communities are going to powwows. Powwows Mm -hmm. are marvelous events where Mm -hmm. one can just gain a deeper insight and appreciation Mm -hmm. for for these, you know, just for these members of our community doing so much to give to the world. I think we all can be inspired by and learn from. Absolutely. Thinking about the state of Michigan, there is a collective of food systems work and community initiatives in Michigan. Mm -hmm. There are also 12 federally recognized tribes in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so many of the events that take place here in the Keweenaw Bay Indian community are open to the public. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for other tribes. Mm. So there are museums, there are cultural events. They have websites just loaded with resources for people to learn more about their neighbors. And I would say some of those would be your first steps. And if you're interested in engaging more, there are volunteer opportunities everywhere. One of the important things that I've learned here is that 
it's said many times that tribal nations need allies. And indigenous people are about 5% of the population globally. Mm. Oh my gosh. There's no way to do this work alone. Mm -hmm. We we need allies. We need partnerships to do this good work together. The fact that we are a collection of many skills and expertise. So no Mm -hmm. matter who you are, you have something to offer. Mm-hmm. You have something to share. And if it's not directly, you know, a tribal nation community, gardens are everywhere. Mm-hmm. So there's so many ways to get involved. The possibilities are just endless. And, you know, we didn't talk about it as part of this podcast, but just, you know, hinting to the fact that climate and Mm -hmm. climate related changes are Mm -hmm. taking place in the current day. Mm -hmm. We have to learn from each other as, as plants are migrating Mm -hmm. or, you know, disappearing from our regions only to return in another region. We, Mm -hmm. we have to be in relationship with other communities to learn more about how our lands are going to change. So everyone has a role Mm -hmm. in this work. Well, that's awesome. It's very inspiring to hear from both of you. For any listeners who have not been to the Keweenaw Peninsula, you are missing out. It is one of the most beautiful places on earth. So try to get there and then you can reach out to Karina and Val when you do. Um, But thank you so much, Karina and Val, for speaking with me today and sharing um, all the beautiful gifts that the Indigenous Gardens Program are offering all of us. So thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.